welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I've been feeling a lot of gratitude recently, and I'm also feeling really renewed and recharged after my time off and doing my first annual high mountain running camp. And so many of you have been reaching out by email and sending me just really beautiful and thoughtful comments and stories and suggestions. And even a few days ago, I got a email from a super fan in Ohio named Iva Reed, and she actually offered to help me with social media. She said, Craig, you need an Instagram page. It would really help the podcast. So she's going to spearhead that. So thank you very much, Iva. In addition to feeling just a lot better since my time off, I've just been so grateful for this most beautiful fall. This has got to be the most fantastic fall in Colorado in the last few years. And I've been feeling grateful for my patients and the storytellers and all of you for listening and being part of this community. And also at the same time, I've been feeling some really deep sadness this week because I, um, I just found out I had another suicide. A young woman, still in college, not even launched on her life path. And I think this gets to this core dialectic of life, of living, and I talked about this at the beginning of season two in my meditation on life and loss. You know, at the same time, there's such profound beauty and goodness, and there's also such terrible pain, and they're both happening at the same time. Like some things are getting so much better and some things are getting worse, and it's just really powerful as I'm recording this, I'm looking out the window and the leaves are falling off the trees. It's so beautiful. And I'm thinking about this woman who killed herself this week and how she didn't think that there was any hope that things could get better. And it just made me, well, one, so sad, but made me just double down on this project and, and this idea of putting the word out there that there is hope, that people do come back from the darkness. And I think that this dialectic of just beauty and pain occurring together, I think that this gets to the heart and soul of Back from the Abyss. Today's episode is not a story, but rather it's a very rich and I think illuminating discussion with Jeff Pincus, who's a couples therapist in Boulder. We explore why it's so challenging to be an effective marriage therapist, why we are all destined to marry the wrong person, hint, our partners eventually become a mirror for us and our issues, and how marriage can be the most nourishing, yet also the most difficult and painful relationship of our lives. I learned a lot talking to Jeff, and I hope you all do too. The next three episodes will be back to the stories. These take a lot more work, planning, and prep, but Chris and I are working hard on those, so more good things are coming, promise. Way back at the end of season one, Chris and I were brainstorming for season two, and Chris said, let's do something on marriage, because most people get married or divorced or think about marriage, and it's just such a universal topic. And so I started putting the call out to try to find couples, I talked to a couple marriage therapists in Fort Collins, and I couldn't find anyone. And in season two, actually one of my very favorite episodes was Touching the Edges of Life, where a psychologist in Fort Collins talks about her divorce and how she healed from that. Then a few months ago, I um, got connected with Jeff Pincus in Boulder, who's a well-known marriage therapist here in Boulder. And I said, Jeff, you got to find me a couple. Like, let's, you know, let's do bring a couple who's in the marital abyss, and then you and I can do kind of a deconstruction post-game. 
but it's been really hard to find that. And, you know, it's interesting as I was driving down here today to Boulder, I'm sitting in Jeff's office. I, I was thinking, why is it so hard? And I thought, you know, I've gone on back from the abyss and shared some really hard, painful stuff about myself, but would I go on this podcast and talk about my marriage? I thought, that's hard. Because our marriage, like, it, it's our... Elizabeth and I have um, a co-created, um, just a very special, I don't know, garden. It's like our refuge and our place of safety. And even though we've had plenty of issues like all couples, I thought, wow, I'll talk about almost anything. I'm an open book, but... Yeah, to talk about marriage is hard. And so anyway, as Jeff and I were talking about this episode, I thought, why don't we just sit down and talk? Because I think both of us are passionately pro-marriage and um, fans of marriage, and you've devoted your career to that. And I'm married to a marriage therapist. I'm a huge fan of this. And I think it's really relevant for Back from the Abyss because you know, one of the biggest predictors of how people are going to do with mental illness or addiction is their support system. And for many adults, the number one support they have is their spouse or life partner. And yet I see so many people that have really conflicted or, or cold or distant or just problematic marriages. And, you know, when I evaluate people, that's one of the things I most want to know is how's your primary relationship. So, Listeners, you may think, why did I drive down to Boulder to talk to Jeff? And I think, actually, this is one of the most relevant topics to what this podcast is trying to do, which is to spread hope and information and, and help people who with mental illness, who treat people with mental illness, or who love someone with mental illness. Like, how do you get through that? But anyway, that was a long intro, Jeff, <laughs> you being very patient. Um, why don't we start with this question... Why is marriage so hard? Because again, I'm a big fan of marriage, but I think marriage is the hardest relationship that any of us will ever try to have. I agree. I think in general, loving well, and I think about the task of marriage is to love well, is really difficult. And there's evolutionary reasons for that. There's neurological reasons for that. You know, I think there's a an innate motivation that we all have that's genetically wired. So it's endogenous. It's, it's, it's in us to do right by our children and take care of them. And evolution has made sure that our progeny uh, live beyond us and uh, if possible, and that we take care of them as well as to make sure that we keep food on the table and a roof over our head. And so we're motivated to, tend to our careers. But this idea that you're going to spend a lifetime together with someone who is um, a best friend, who you have sexual attraction with, who you share values with, um, you co-create a life together and manage all the complexities of modern life uh, and live for decades with the same person um, into your 80s, 90s, something like that. I think it's a really cool idea. But evolutionarily speaking, the paint is still drying on that one. So to do the loving thing when it really counts, oftentimes we're having to move our, against our own reflexes. And our reflexes don't necessarily care about uh, 
the longevity or the quality of our relationship, our reflexes primarily are concerned with issues around survival. Mm-hmm. So, so what do those look like, those reflexes that you talk about in a marriage, you know, our survival evolutionary reflexes, how do those play out in hour-to-hour, day-to-day marital sure. life? Sure. Well, you know, if, if our listeners are like the rest of us, right, they might spend um, time uh, debating reality with their partner um, and pushing each other into states of fight or flight, and freeze and shutting down. And that state is a really good state if you want to deal with something dangerous, uh, like a mountain lion. Since we're here in Colorado, we have mountain lions. A uh, mountain lion or, or someone that truly is physically dangerous. But because the brain doesn't really differentiate much between physical and emotional safety, what ends up happening is there are misperceptions between partners and um, and then the reflex is to either defend oneself or be offended by your partner's misperception or to try and explain or to try and debate reality, what, what did or didn't happen, who did what when. And that's a dead end. Um, and so this polarization can happen, especially in conflict, with another human being that has a very different brain than you than me, and sees reality differently. It, it sounds like what you're describing is this the fight-flight survival mechanism, which has served us so well, now might be getting activated as you're making dinner together. For sure. Or as you're driving to DIA. Yeah. Not life-threatening, potentially, but um, your partner becomes a threat, can you know, make a comment on the way you're chopping vegetables, and... He or she becomes a mountain lion. You've been in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Not that that's ever happened in my home, that my wife has commented on how I cut the vegetables. Mm. My marriage works a lot better if I don't even attempt to load the dishwasher. (laughs) Uh, Because Rachel has a very specific way, because she tries to maximize space and save water, while I just want to load it up as quickly as possible and get on to the next task. And even a small mundane thing like that used to be really a, a pain point between us. And it seems absurd, but there would be this moment of tension, there'd be a moment of misunderstanding, there'd be a moment of either of us feeling concerned about our needs. And, uh, you know, again, very mundane moments, but we had to figure that out and work through it. And, uh, and that's not uncommon because there's nothing more, uh, I think, frustrating than another human being that sees reality differently from you, from us, it's interesting at first, and then it gets <laughs> annoying, and then it gets frustrating, and then it gets painful. And it gets painful when that state of fight or flight is unregulated, and couples act on those reflexes of self-protection at the cost of relationship. Mm-hmm. I read a few years ago an essay, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. It just <laughs> reminded me of what you were just saying here, that inevitably 
you realize that your partner has a different worldview, different perspectives, different filters. Do every, you know, even if you are more or less aligned with the outer goals, drives, um, politics, mm-hmm. morals, that you can't help but see that your partner is seeing things often very differently. And that just seems like a recipe for problems. Exactly. And yet that can also be um, a pathway towards healing some of the, the biases that we come to relationship with because we're all coming to relationship with a history and we're all walking around with a memory-based perception system that's informing an emotion-driven behavioral system. And so uh, none of us see reality uh, directly because it's all uh, the models that we use, that our brain creates, that's based on previous learning and memory and, and how our brain likes to predict the future. And so we all come with these histories of relationship and deep early learning about what we can and can't have or what we can and can't do. And that shows up in our marriages. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes it sound like it's, is marriage hopeless? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, t- I say that again as a big fan of marriage because, you know, it used to be for so long that ma- marriage was a way to join families or wealth or to in- enable security or reduce the risk of drought. I mean, I mean, of loss uh, of starvation. But now, as you pointed out, we twenty twenty one we expect our spouses to be our good friends and our companions and our sexual mates and our financial co-planners and possibly co-parents. And I mean, so many roles that, uh, it, and then as you said, we, we come from, with, from different backgrounds with different beliefs and different filters and we see the world differently. I mean, one could imagine that if you and I were describing like to aliens visiting the planet, this institution of marriage that they would say, yeah, that seems like a doomed venture. Like how, <laughs> why would you want to do that? <laughs> It's a good question. So, you know, I, I think a lot of folks that I see were naive when they got married and they fell in love and they didn't really get the amount of um, personal challenge that they would have to face as far as um, really taking a deep look at themselves and who they picked and really knowing how to operationalize that in a way that is going to work out well and feel good to both parties. A lot of people fall in love and they think, oh, this is my person. And that's a beautiful, I'm not knocking that state, that's a yummy state. And yet, at some point, you're really going to have to take a closer look at who are you and who did you pick. Mm -hmm. That's one of the slogans that my wife, Rachel, and I use clinically is, you know, know yourself and know who you picked. And when I say know yourself, know how your past um, shows up in the present moment in your relationship so that, and know that about your partner so that you guys can be nudging each other back into reality as opposed to reliving perhaps some of the most painful moments of uh, relationship you know, from the old country back, you know, back when you were a child and you mm. lacked agency and you were just a kid and you're subject to what the environment provides or doesn't provide. And 
you know, I'm not, I'm not going all Freudian. <laughs> a lot of what he said was bunk, but, but memory drives perception. And we're modeling the world. And we're modeling relationship. And that model is based on early experience. There's no way around that. What aspects of ourself, of ourselves do you think are most important to be curious about or understand in the context of a marriage? That's a good question. Um, I think knowing uh, what our fears are and what our longings are. Right? I think we all come to the table with, with uh, deep drives that are organized around fear, around what we imagine we can't have and what's painful for us and what what it is that we long for as well as knowing what our strategies are like what are our behavioral strategies that we use to manage difficult emotional experience mm-hmm. um you know i know when i'm angry i i i or if i'm hurt or scared i could get fast and i want to debate and that doesn't really help uh, <laughs> create more love when love is needed. So, you know, I had to learn, I'm wondering to disclose this or not, but uh, like I never knew that I could be an asshole. <laughs> really, really. And even though I'm from New York, you know, my dad was from the Bronx and my mother's from Brooklyn, so there might be a genetic component to it. But most people like me, think I'm affable and easy to get along with. But if you're married to me, I had to take a closer look at, oh, I can do this thing and I can come off as being an asshole. And that hurts my wife. Mm -hmm. And at first I wanted to debate that and defend myself and, you know, challenge her perception. And then I started to notice my tone of voice sometimes or certain things that I would say. And my intention wasn't to be an asshole, but I started to be able to see, oh, hey, was that thing I just did or said, was that kind of asshole-ish? And she would nod her head. I was like, oh, okay, I think I'm getting it. (laughs) So hopefully my marriage has made me a little bit less Mm asshole-ish. I think that's true of me too. (laughs) You should take a poll. Listeners, have you become less asshole-ish in your marriage? And I think that might correlate with better marriage. The mm-hmm. people that would say, no, I've not become less asshole-ish. me i wanted to explore another similar topic now, i'm a huge fan of therapy and one of the purposes of back from the abyss is to celebrate therapy and talk about different kinds of therapy and what's worked for different people and while i think 
you know, play therapy and trauma therapy and EMDR and somatic therapy and psychedelic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. I think those are all challenging, interesting, extremely deep uh, forms of healing. I would argue, and I have argued, that marriage therapy is the most challenging kind of therapist to be and to do. And I know in Fort Collins, when because I always refer out for marriage therapy, I don't do that myself. I struggle to come up with names because I know lots and lots and lots of people who say, oh yeah, I do individual therapy, family therapy, EMDR, Hakomi, play the, you know, this long list, which to me is a little bit like I do pap smears and colonoscopies and I do cystic acne and I'll do some ketamine for you and check your eyes. It's like, what? Yeah. And so I have to admit, I have a real bias that I think, I mean, again, I want to hear your opinion on this and why, but I think of marriage couples therapy as the most difficult kind of therapy to do, to be good at. And I really think that if that's what you do, that's probably what you mostly need to do mm-hmm. because it's so challenging. Although then I also wonder, be curious what you have to say on this. This is a multi-part question, sorry. That's good. <laughs> that you, um, because it's so challenging, that it seems like you would either have to work less or maybe fit in some other kinds of therapy because just having, you know, couple in conflict, couple with affair, couple uh, with emotional dislike, that's just, man, that's a lot of weight to carry. Mm. You know, I think there's a, a few reasons for that. One is you're outnumbered and they're coming in with a very strong system that interacts in particular ways. And the therapist very much is an outsider. And so it's a, I think it is significantly different than when a client or patient is coming in to see you and they're motivated to work with you because they're suffering. Yeah. So, so for one, the therapist is, is, is a bit of an outsider. And because of that system being really strong, they're going to do what they do. And so it's going to be live. It's not going to be them telling you about what happened last week, though they'll probably want to engage in that as well and and have you referee them or pick sides oftentimes but there's a level of affect intensity there's a level of strong emotion they're going to get activated in front of you and that is not easy to be around it's not easy to be in a small room with two people that are fighting just just that <laughs> yeah right and then they're looking to you to do something so i think it is what you're saying though it, it, it's a different animal than than all the other things you know and and what i like what you're saying is perhaps there's certain disciplines within our general mental health field and that rather than be a generalist, and I think it's good to know something about a lot of things that's important to be competent, but at some point to really dig down and specialize and get really good at, at one thing that you could really serve people. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm hearing you say in your question, because if you were going to go get surgery you don't want the person that does a lot of different things oh yeah i've done one of those Mm -hmm. you want the person that says oh yeah i i do like 10 of those a day okay Mm -hmm. yeah i want that person i think oftentimes couples come in too not too late but they've waited 
And that can be different, I think, than individual therapy for some reason. I think a lot of folks might be, um, at least here in Boulder, proactive. They're into personal growth. And I get a lot of that in, in my therapy practice, too. I'm fortunate. But oftentimes people wait until there's a real problem and that problem doesn't seem to be solvable. And they've waited a while to address it. And so they can come in feeling hopeless or helpless and they're looking for the therapist to do something. And so couple therapy also does necessitate the therapist knows what to do and helps the couple do something because it can't just be nodding, nodding her head, being "Mm, mm -hmm," sort of that Rogerian empathic stance beautiful as that is that's not gonna that's not gonna be strong enough to move the system and to change the system they're gonna they're gonna need to know with specificity what tasks they can do and you're gonna have to help them do it live in the office to see what happens it can't just be a nice suggestion you know oh have a date night or something like that and i'll see you next week and let's Tell me how it goes. You actually have to, we have to work in the states that are problematic and work through those states to resolution so that we can actually uh, understand them better and that the couple can learn what to do when that state arises. And when I'm talking about that state, that, that, that emotional state of uh, fear or anger or frustration or disappointment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sense too is that people often go to individual therapy when there's mild to moderate turbulence and that people come to marriage therapy, couples therapy, when the plane's burrowing just into almost to hit the ground. Because yeah. it's hard enough to get oneself to therapy, and then, but to get your partner, first to ask your partner to coordinate it. And I know my wife's talked about that. The couples who reach out to her are almost always in much more distress than the individuals. And she feels, and much like you said, like you have to start... Um, making changes in vivo right away because the couple's very likely plunging down quickly. Like it's sort of a, it's like an urgent care ER form of therapy. Like we don't have six months just like, let's get to know each other and let me hear about your elementary school and how your soccer coach was. It's like, no, like things are bad now. And again, I'm guessing you might see this too. A lot of couples I try to get to go to therapy like it can't where it's too late mm. it's where it's too broken it's too and so that puts even more pressure on me to think okay who's a really good marriage therapist because they need someone who can very quickly identify what's going on act on it and, mm-hmm. and start to give them some hope right and not just like oh i've been heard or validated or seen but no i actually have this therapist who is going is moving us towards concrete action, mm-hmm. and it even happened in the session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that is common. They come and and it's they've given up hope, and they don't realize that hopelessness and helplessness. Again, those experiences, those too, harken back to another time when they lacked agency in relationship, and as adults. Um, we really, we can learn new things and we can, um, we can influence the marital system. If you're married or if you're in a relationship, there is a lot that you can do that will have a profound impact 
um, on your relationship and move the needle forward. hard though has to do with motivation there's motivation problems and knowledge problems and as a therapist we have to suss out when we're seeing a couple is it a knowledge problem do they genuinely do don't know what to do or is it a motivation problem that they know what the loving thing is but they don't want to do it because they anticipate some kind of sense of loss if they were the ones to do the better thing. They feel like the relationship is is too unfair and there's too much history and memory and data that they have that the, the relationship is unfair. So they don't want to do the loving thing because they feel like they'll be taken advantage of or it won't get them anything. It won't pay dividends. And so part of my job is to challenge that and to push them to do some loving move live in the office, and then we can see what happens when they do it. Does it actually soften their partner? Does it move the needle, or were they right? You know, what's what's an example of a loving move? You know, I'm just even thinking. You know, one partner is in distress and complaining about, say, whatever did or didn't happen last week, and they bring that into the office. The loving move would be to take up your partner's complaint rather than debate it, rather than defend oneself or what one's intentions were. Um, and again, that's not easy to do. That's moving against the reflex of self-protection and being loving in that moment might be leaning in, literally taking your partner's hands, looking in his or her eyes um, and saying, tell me, you know, tell me about what was painful. I, I, I need to know about this because mm-hmm. I really care about you. Mm-hmm. And shit, I'm sorry. I fucked that up. I didn't, I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. That yeah. would be loving. And yet that's not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Well, even the eyes part, I, I know you are pack trained and we can talk about that in a minute. And you've done a lot of work with Stan Tatkin. I'm a huge Stan Tatkin Cat- mm. mm-hmm. fan. Yeah. My wife and I did a weekend workshop with him with a bunch of other couples. Mm-hmm. And I remember going thinking like, oh yeah, marriage is good. And maybe I'll learn some things that are helpful for work. And by the end of the weekend, I thought, oh my gosh, I learned so much that's helpful for us. And uh, and so the I thing reminded me, you know, my takeaways from that weekend and actually Stan and his wife were teaching it. And Basically, it involved, you know, as you know, he and his wife giving some sort of brief lessons, then having couples come up and reenact things and um, reenact their most recent fight. And, mm-hmm. But anyway, <clears throat> one of the things we practiced a lot was eye to eye, face to face. And, you know, as he talked about, so much of the shit that happens in marriage is in the car, on the highway, is in bed, on the looking at the screens, cooking dinner, stirring the spaghetti, but not face-to-face. And so he challenged all of us to make sure that if you're talking about anything with any heat, any valence, that it's face-to-face, eye-to-eye. And that has been like one of the hugest transformations, I think, in our marriage. And just one other little thing that I took from that, and then I want to hear your take on all this. But 
you know, Stan talked about how crucial it is to settle your nervous system when you leave your partner when you come back. Mm -hmm. So he challenged all of us to, um, as you leave for work, whoever leaves first to find your partner and to hug into relaxation, whether that's two seconds or two minutes that you both kind of settle into each other and feel each other's warmth. And then you break apart and same thing at the end of the day. And pretty much my wife and I always do that. And it is a game changer it is, I can't, it's such a small thing. These two things, like anything with emotional heat, eye to eye, and seek each other out at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of the workday, the end, mm-hmm. it has helped both of us so much. And I think, one, I think like that's so fantastic too. I think, wait, both of us are therapists. We've had a lot of training. I never heard that. I just think how many couples are out there are just missing those two little pieces of information. Like, as you said, you know, loving encouraging a loving interaction in a session with a couple is actually eye to eye. Because mm-hmm. like, so often, if you look at what couples are doing, what I'm doing with my wife, um, hopefully less so, is we're fighting about stuff and arguing and we're not even looking at each other. Like yeah. I have no idea her expression or I'm just thinking like, I don't care. I'm just going to make my case. And even if I'm just looking here at the bubbling pot of noodles, ha, you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep making my case. Yeah. So... Uh, anyway, that was my long-winded intro into sort of my my love of that work and the connection. And even you and I are sitting here looking eye to eye, and it's, yeah. it's so cool. Like, we're not on Zoom. You know, we're sitting in your office, and it's it's very powerful. Yeah, I noticed, actually, I started to settle. You know, first when we started the podcast, I think I was looking away so I could find my thoughts. and But I was in my head. And when I'm looking at you right now, you know, it's like, ah, two guys just hanging out talking about the nerdy stuff that we we really like and are interested in and study and um and it feels very very different because what this does is it brings me into the present moment rather than worrying so much about how i sound mm-hmm. and i'm not managing my presentation as much when I'm, we're just looking at each other like this mm-hmm. and there's something that's actually quite comfortable and um, present about that. And the problem with not looking at your partner, especially in the heat of battle, is you're relating to the mental model of your partner. And it's the worst version of the mental model of your partner. So it's really easy to keep relating to that negative, you know, in my case, the negative idea I have of Rachel or uh, the, the negative you know, idea you have of Elizabeth, right? As opposed to looking, when we look at our wives, we actually then start to see who they are in three dimensions, literally, and that maybe she is not who I imagined her to be when I felt hurt a moment ago. Like a mountain lion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Blood dripping from the yeah. claws. Yeah. Cut the vegetables the right. proper way, Julian style. Right. Not your stupid burrito style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so looking, and yet for some people, looking is hard. And they, I'm, I go back to the slogan that Rachel and I use that in some ways is, is, it's the essence of a lot of how we work is know yourself and know who you picked. And I'm talking about that on a deeper nervous system level. And, you know, say, why is being told about how to cut something, you know, why is that a pain point? You know, we're not going to talk about that 
here now, but um, I, I know myself, I don't like to be told what to do. And, and, and that's not necessarily about my wife or my marriage. That harkens back to the old country with those other people uh, when I was just a wee, a wee boy. <laughs> And yet we don't age out of those sensitivities unless we're working on it. So, um, again, we will naturally misperceive each other and we're naturally going to misperceive each other's intentions. But by looking at each other, coming back to the present moment, you have a chance to start to see reality and you have a chance to start to nudge each other back into this present moment of two adults, adults that love each other. There's no children here. It just feels that way. Uh, and uh, so, so looking at each other is important. The other thing that you mentioned is transitions. Transitions are also inherently stressful on the brain. Um, that's why you know, if you have young kids, you're, you, know, you probably spend time like, okay, five minutes, you're going to have to put the toys away, and then you're going to put your shoes on. And Because if you just walk in and say, you know, okay, toys away, shoes on, they're like, no. Because it's hard to do that. And it's actually even hard for our adult brains to do that. Um, So I know, you know, Rachel and I do the same practice. You know, we were very close with Stan and part of the uh, packed core faculty. And so we instituted that that contact with um, arrivals and, 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 and leaving. And it made a big difference just that because, uh, being focused on two very different things. If one of you is out working, one's at home and you come home and your state is not going to be synced up. I mean, I think about dogs. You you look at what dogs do when they greet each other, right? And, and what is that? You know, they sniff each other and sniff each other's butt, but it really, it's been, it, it's sort of like, oh, hey, you're back. And what have you been up to? And, and like, oh, there you are. Okay. And, and who uh, you've been messing around with? Yeah. Oh, him and her and, and, and her. Right. And so, so, so to be able to, to, to sync back up again without having to do a lot of talk, because at the end of the day, we're, We are like dogs, sometimes smarter, sometimes dumber. episodes on the podcast I've talked about how excuse me as an early psychiatrist therapist I would meet people and I would have my whole list of goals I'm like okay here's what you need here's what you need to do here's what you need to work on here's clearly all the problems and you know over the years I just realized more and more hello wake up that it's really about my patients goals a lot of my patients I have goals for them that sometimes I make explicit like, I wish you could stop using IV drugs or smoking meth, but I know that's not your goal right now, but I will continue to just bring it up every once in a while. Um, but in general, I try to recognize that people come with their goals, uh, and we need to at least start with those. But I'm wondering, like with couples therapy, 
again, now there's three people. So there's you mm-hmm. and the way you view couples and the way marriages heal and your understanding of neurobiology and, and eye-to-eye contact and loving gestures and safety. And then you have two other people who very likely have very different goals. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how you think about uh, goals as they evolve through the therapy, because I think you know you have a f- philosophical understanding, kind of a, a treatment structure of how you think about couples go badly and how they go well. And then you've got these two other people in the room who may be there for unknowable reasons. Mm-hmm. Usually what they know is they're in pain and they want to be out of pain. And so I, I, ha- I do have to take on that goal. I can't immediately start talking about, you know, uh, developmental tasks. In fact, I don't ever talk about, I would never use that term with my couples, even though I think that way again, cause I'm, I'm, I think about how the brain works and modeling and again, the whole memory based anticipation, thing but i don't really even talk that way much to couples i i want to know what kind of pain they're having and where they want to get to and to give them some moves that will start to make progress in getting them out of pain and getting them more of what it is they want what they don't realize um the moves that they're they're using to get their needs met clearly aren't working so I have to prove that to them. I can't just say it to them because that's pedantic or I'm not coming from some moralistic place of you should. You know, they're adults. They can do whatever they want. But something does happen with, you know, instinct or, or reflex run amok. And there's a, there are consequences for that. And to start to give them some incremental moves that start to give them hope and a taste of what's possible and I need to do that quickly. And actually, I need to do that within the first session, that they should walk out with more hope and more of a sense of what is possible. And not because I um, am just some kind of cheerleader, but because they've had an experience. We go back to eyes. Eyes are an experience. They had some kind of experience that challenges their their present narrative um, that isn't all that helpful to their relationship. And that experience was facilitated by doing something, actually some kind of loving behavior, and that we start to see the system, the, the marital system, the couple system start to relax, and maybe even just a, a few moments of connection and they get a taste of that and then again there's there's hope it isn't just some idea mm-hmm. that oh if you work on your marriage it'll get better it has to actually be something visceral that they can feel in their body and they could experience it mm-hmm. does that affect sometimes the way you have people sit because you're thinking like in a classics you sort of imagine a couple's therapist office maybe a couple on the couch and therapist on a chair or and, and so the couple can facing the therapist, the experts, you know. And, right. But a lot of what you're talking about, what Tatkin's talking about, is you actually is you're turning toward your partner, both both literally and metaphorically, like turning into them and facing them and seeing them. 
maybe touching them, holding them, but not necessarily sitting parallel on a couch looking at the expert therapist. Yeah, they're not really allowed to sit on the couch, um, <laughs> kind of until it's until there's a purpose to sit on the couch, mm. and then I might do something on the couch. But uh, yeah, I have two uh, nice office chairs, and this is very much a, a packed intervention that Stan came up with. Um, two office chairs, and they're actually facing each other, and they come into the room and. Oftentimes, couples will just naturally gravitate towards the couch, and it's a nice couch, and it's a little less intimidating than facing off with each other. Um, but I'll say, no, th- those chairs are for you, and they will sit down. And it's, but it's a lot more efficient, right? Part of this too is helping them feel less threatened about um, interacting with each other because it isn't. It isn't some kind of lecture that I'm going to be giving them. That's not going to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Again, I keep coming back to they will have to do something, and I have to give them a task as to what it is that they actually have to do in front of me in the office that's going to start to make their marriage better. Mm-hmm. How do couples heal? Like if I know this is this is a broad question, and there's so many couples with so many different tra- trajectories. But I'm guessing because I see this in my work, like there's a way that people heal. Like there's some general things I look for. Can like you it, say something? Yeah. About for, that? So for example, yeah. Um, in my individual patients, uh, one of the biggest ones is sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a whole podcast episode on this. It's called the the most important question in psychiatry, and and that question is what time do you wake up? So every patient, every time I see them, I ask them, not just how did you sleep, but when you get up, when you go to bed, because I'm convinced that healthy people, psychologically, psychiatrically healthy people act like diurnal daytime mammals. I think when people are on an arc of improvement, they look better. Mm-hmm. I go out to the waiting room, and I think, wow, you look healthy. They actually look healthier. I think with my individual patients, when they're on an arc of healing, they, um, they're starting to experience want, whether that's like, here's a good example. I've had some people who are so desperately traumatized and depressed that I would ask them, are you lonely? No, no, I'm just where I want to be, you know, locked away in my apartment with my cats, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but as they start to heal, like, I'm so lonely. And I'm like, you want people like, that's so good. Yeah. You know, cause so often people come to me and there's just they're so deadened that from whatever ails them that there's just no want. Like, what do you want? So I, so I think I see sleep improving. I stay look better. Um, one of my favorite ones is someone comes in, like I have a new girlfriend. Really? (laughs) Or I called my dad. I hadn't talked to him in a long time, but people reaching out to reconnect so those are some of the markers. I think, again, this is true, I think, with addiction or, or bipolar disorder or panic or trauma or um, meth, you know, that there are these features of healthy humans that are universal. 
And I'm wondering, like with couples, you know, as you think of couples, they first come in such pain to see you. And as couples move along the healing trajectory, like what are there common things that you're looking to see in the way they interact, in the way they are in the world? Because again, I'm guessing when couples first show up, they think this is just the way it is. It's like almost like when you have the stomach flu, like I'll never want to eat again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know, from the outside, you know, oh no, you're going to want a cheeseburger in two days. (laughs) Yeah. So is there anything like that you see with couples kind of an arc of what healing looks like characteristics where you think, oh, this is, this is hopeful. Yeah. I think one of the biggest markers is that they can get out of trouble quickly. Um, again, being, being in a relationship is difficult because this person has such a different experience, sees reality differently. And so, but to be able to move out of conflict uh, quickly and get back to that loving place. So really the, the marker that I use is, and I think Stan also talks about this, is getting in and out of trouble quickly. Mm. And so... Um, or, or Terry Real has a term that I love, normal marital hatred. And I just, I love mm-hmm. the, that term because if you're honest, and for one, it's very intense, it's very provocative. But if you're honest, again, at, at times, it's going to feel that way. Like, ugh, really? You, you, you do it that way? Or, or you said that, right? And we're going to um, be really frustrated um, by our partner. And to be able to go from that state where you're, uh, potentially in conflict, you don't like each other, moving back into uh, connection and a sense of, oh yeah, we're friends, we like each other, we love each other, and I'm attracted to you. Um, and to be able to do that quickly, with, within a matter of minutes, mm-hmm. to be able to change out of that state of ugh, the yuck and back into the yum um, without mm-hmm. a lingering for hours or days or weeks or months or years. Um, I would imagine that could be a really helpful phrase, normal marital hatred. Mm -hmm. People hear that and they think, wait, it's normal for married people to kind of feel a little hate? Like, really, that's a thing? Yeah. And they can still love each other and they can still have fun on vacation and want to have sex with each other, but still sometimes there's some normal marital hatred yeah, I, you know, I think, I think it is helpful, and so I appreciate Terry's term. Robert Bly once said, uh, put two people in a room, and a fight's going to break out. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I do believe, and I do believe that that's true. And that, that isn't pessimistic as much as just, again, how we're wired. We're wired more towards um, living another day than we are to live this l- long life of, of profound joy, pleasure, and, uh, and meaning. And I think it's a really good goal, and it is possible to have a lifelong experience of joy, pleasure, and meaning. But you're going to have moments of yuck or hatred in there, and it's going to be important and possible to be able to change that state kind of like you're able to change the channel when you are you know watching a show you don't like it or something comes on the radio you don't like that song you 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 change it right Mm. to be able to actually change that state and know how to do that so that's the marker 
that I'm looking for, looking for, as well as then to be able to amplify those positive states so that they can stay on line longer. Because you know, because of our negative bias, it's easier to remember the the painful negative stuff than it is the positive stuff. So couples in general have to get good at attenuating negative experience and amplifying positive experience. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the main prognostic factors that when a couple comes to sit in your office, not on the couch, let's say they haven't graduated to the couch, <laughs> they're in their own chairs, and you are getting to know them in the first, maybe second session, and you're starting to think about, how are these folks going to do? So what do you think about in terms of positive prognostic factors for the couple and negative? You know, I, th- I think uh, a positive factor is their willingness to learn. And and inside of that is, um, are they willing to look at themselves? Or do, are they coming and wanting me to change their partner? And immediately they want me to take their partner for task, to task for their bad behavior or for being frustrating to them or hurtful to them or for them... Uh, for the fact that they're not getting their needs met. Um, that doesn't bode so well, because at some point they're going to have to look at themselves because that's where the leverage is. The leverage, I can't, I can't change their partner for them. It doesn't work that way. Probably lost a lot of potential clients when I say that. That's okay. <laughs> but but, um, but you should, you know, out there that are listening, but you really ought to know like so much of this work is about self-reflection and knowing your partner on a deeper level. And as opposed to somehow the therapist taking sides and proving your case, it's not like that. I'm mm-hmm. not a judge. This isn't a court. Mm-hmm. And that they still actually like each other at times. I think that's really important. What would you estimate of all the people who come in your office? And thinking about this idea of the willingness and ability to self-reflect and you know own your stuff. I mean, what percentage roughly of people that you see just can't or won't do that? There's a difference between can't and won't. Mm-hmm. Let's deal with the won't first. The won't... You know, probably a, a lot of folks come into the first session like that. I would say the majority of folks, maybe even, uh, maybe it's 60% um, of couples that come in, they really believe that if only my partner would or wouldn't, and fill in the blank, mm-hmm. I'd have a great relationship. And, uh, and I have to uh, dispel that somehow. Um, but the majority probably do come in um, like that, because we don't see ourselves. I mean, I think all of us have blind, again, I didn't know I was an asshole, uh, until I got married. Um, didn't know that I had unresolved baggage, uh, you know, before I met my wife, 
you know, I had done tons, years of therapy. I had a lot of other relationships, um, tons of meditation. And not that I was enlightened, but I had this idea of myself that I was a fairly equanimous person because nobody was pushing my buttons until I fell in love with the person that I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And that revealed all that was unresolved inside of me. And that was a painful process. And I think people that come in to work with me don't realize that that's going to be part of the process and the path is to really have to feel things that are excruciating. But as adults, we can feel them. They're just emotions, but they can be excruciating to look at ourselves and look at aspects of ourselves that aren't so lovely Mm -hmm. and having a more realistic view of oneself that we all come with things that are lovely and and uh, beautiful and we have strong suits and then there's aspects of ourselves that are uh, you know I wouldn't want to advertise them (laughs) yeah I do think that marriage is, for many of us, the most challenging relationship we will ever have in our lives. And I think it can also be a source of profound support and comfort, a font of joy and of meaning, and also lifelong personal growth. We change through relationship. We grow through challenge and adversity. Marriage gives us the opportunity to know ourselves more deeply so that we might better understand our own reactions and thus love our partners better. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.